Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Many thanks, Ian. Uh, it's uh, very kind of Ian to do my sales pitch for me and saved me five minutes uh, in which I was going to introduce this book, Cannabis Nation. Um, obviously, I was thrilled when Ian and Daisy asked me to speak this evening, but they gave me the, the, the broad remit, speak about whatever you want. Uh, and having been working on this, uh, certainly in this field for the last 20 years, uh, this caused a problem. How am I going to sum up 20 years' worth of research uh, in one evening? So, uh, rest assured... Uh, if there's anything that you find unconvincing uh, this evening, or you want to go away and examine the evidence for yourself, it's easily done uh, in Cannabis Nation. Ian mentioned Cannabis Britannica, uh, and this was the first book that really sparked my interest in cannabis in the British. I had this idea following my PhD research on mental health institutions uh, in colonial India that the British had been concerned about cannabis uh, for a far longer time than historians believed, uh, certainly 15 years ago when Cannabis Britannica was published. There was a common idea, I think, circulating uh, in government uh, about 17 or 18 years ago when David Blunkett was Home uh, Secretary, that cannabis had only really been a problem in British uh, society and had only really been a subject of, of interest for British scientists uh, problems for British policemen and British administrators, and had only really consumed uh, in Britain uh, since the 1960s. And this was a, this was a much repeated myth, uh, as Blunkett did battle with the Daily Mail uh, over whether cannabis would be reclassified uh, back in the 1990s. I had a hunch that actually cannabis uh, was a problem for the British well before this, uh, and the hunch being based on the idea that cannabis was linked with mental health problems out in the empire, uh, way back in the 19th century, uh, Britain controlled parts of the world in Egypt and in India, Pakistan, uh, and so on, which had long traditions of consuming cannabis. And almost from the moment that the British began to govern and tried to impose some sort of control, on these regions as part of the project of building empire. They'd expressed concerns about this cannabis use uh, in local societies, whilst at the same time taxing that cannabis consumption in local societies. Here was, a, uh, if you like, a paradox. I was hearing repeated in the 1990s, the idea that on the one hand, Governments can be concerned about the substance, whilst at the same time generating a handsome revenue uh, from taxing that substance. And we need only think of tobacco and alcohol uh, to see how this is uh, an idea that continues to resonate today, much as it did 200 years ago. So what I want to introduce to you uh, over the next 20 minutes or so uh, is my attempt to answer this question. This is the current position. So by 2016, uh, and the Home Office regularly produces its annual review of drug taking, uh, by 2016, which was the last time I looked, 6.5% of adults uh, in the British population 
aged between 16 and 59, used cannabis uh, that year. Just to give you a sense of what this means, this is just over something like 2 million uh, adults uh, in the population. Uh, but you find that once you start to break this down by age group, their statistics become even more interesting. Uh, adults uh, aged between 16 and 24, young adults, as the Home Office call them, uh, young adults uh, were using uh, cannabis in greater numbers. Something like 16% uh, of 16 to 24-year-olds claim to have used cannabis in the previous year, uh, just short of a million uh, uh, people. Cannabis is by far and away the largest uh, single substance that's been consumed by um, psychoactive substance consumers in the UK at the moment. The next nearest uh, in the league table uh, of psychoactive substances we like to take is cocaine. Uh, and there's about 750,000 people a year uh, claim to have used cocaine in the previous year, certainly back in 2016. So cannabis is by far and away the largest uh, single substance that's being consumed by uh, those taking psychoactive substances. Two million people. But where did this market come from? This is a market that's actually been declining uh, over the last decade and reached a peak at the beginning uh, of uh, the noughties, about 2001, 2002. Um, but nevertheless, this remains a significant market for uh, what is, after all, uh, a controlled substance and indeed an illegal substance. Uh, so the question I really want to tackle over the next 20 minutes or so is where did all these consumers come from? Where did this market come from? Because as I'm about to demonstrate, there were no consumers of cannabis in Britain 60 years ago. Certainly by the time we get to the post-war period, there are, um, we can continue to say there are no cannabis consumers in the UK. So, this is a recent phenomenon. How do we explain it? This has certainly got little to do with medicine, certainly up until the 1990s. Uh, cannabis was declared uh, an obsolete uh, medicine uh, by the WHO during the 1950s. But for all intended purposes, cannabis had become obsolete uh, as a medicinal substance in Britain by the beginning of the 20th century. It had enjoyed a brief uh, moment uh, when it was hailed as a wonder drug by Victorian doctors back in the 1840s. But by the time we get to the beginning of the 20th century, cannabis is very rarely used. And there's all sorts of reasons for this. Uh, it was a difficult substance to use uh, up until the 1960s because the active ingredient, or as we now know, the active ingredients uh, in organic cannabis hadn't been isolated. To give you a sense of the context here, morphine was isolated uh, from opium uh, and extractable by 1802. So pharmacists and pharmacologists struggled to identify the active ingredient in cannabis uh, up until the 1960s, which made it difficult to use in modern medicines. Um, but certainly by the time we get to the beginning of the 20th century, the big boom um, market to be in uh, is in synthetic drugs and um, organic substances uh, such as cannabis and even opium and the opiates were seen as unfashionable, certainly by the 1920s. Um, cannabis wasn't widely consumed. It certainly wasn't seen as a drug of addiction uh, as the, 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 sort of the, the field of addiction studies began to grow at the 20th century. Nobody was using cannabis in the UK. Drugs of addiction were heroin and morphine and increasingly by the 1920s, cocaine. 
So these were the substances that tended to be discussed in the nascent field of addiction studies. And cannabis had fallen into disrepute, really. The, um, the associations with Asia and the empire meant that it was seen as a, an exotic substance used by faraway peoples. It was of very little interest in medical circles. This doesn't mean that the uh, tabloids weren't interested in cannabis. Uh, and the most regular reporting that we can find of uh, cannabis uh, in the UK is actually in the newspapers uh, in the 20s and increasingly so in the 1930s. I'll give you some hints of this. The 1938 Sunday Referee uh, a paper, sadly, no longer in existence, uh, gave us this wonderful headline of a new drug peril sweeping Britain, uh, and it urged police, uh, the public rather, to communicate with the police at once if you see growing in any country gardens a straggly plant from three to eight feet tall. The story claimed that the market gardens of the south of England were being bought up by uh, a, uh, an international drug smuggling cartel uh, and uh, being used to grow cannabis for the growing market in London. There was an element of truth in this because there was a landowner in Northamptonshire who was trying to grow um, cannabis. Uh, or rather he was trying to grow hemp. And he was growing these wonderful hemp plants uh, to try and tackle uh, what was perceived as a national crisis in rope. So yes, there was a landowner growing Indian hemp, uh, as it can be called, uh, in the home counties. But sadly, uh, the way he was growing it meant that even if it was a viable psychoactive crop, uh, it would have been uh, useless for that purpose. In 1935, the much lamented the news of the world uh, spoke of a growing menace of the drug trade. Dope cigarettes in the West End uh, was their title. Uh, two aspects of the new drug menace are causing grave concern. The increase in the smoking of doped cigarettes, particularly by white girls in the West End, and the easy rich drugs can be obtained in the heart of the empire's capital. So we've got elements of race, migration, gender, and um, psychoactive substances all uh, mixing in together, proving that there's nothing new in the media. So is there any truth in this? No. By 1940, the Home Office concluded that there is no evidence of the abusive use of Indian hemp amongst the inhabitants of the country. But he occasionally hashish, uh, which was a North African name uh, for cannabis substances, has been found in the possession of Oriental seamen who have brought a small quantity for their own use. The reason we, the Home Office was interested in this is because in 1920, uh, a particular uh, unit had been set up in the Home Office, the Home Office Drugs Branch, which continues to exist until today. Uh, it was obliged to set up uh, the Drugs Branch uh, because of the 1920s Dangerous Drugs Act, which was partly the outcome of uh, international agreements that were being put in place uh, by the League of Nations. Many of you will uh, be aware that opium had been uh, a great um, a source of controversy in the 19th century as the British funded the empire in India by selling opium to China. And opium had remained a political issue well into the 20th century um, because China was um, trying to close down uh, the trade in opium. The British Empire had agreed to observe this uh, in 1907, but then the Americans had gotten involved to try and uh, persuade uh, uh, everybody to act more quickly for the good of the world 
uh, which uh, is actually a quote that the American diplomats use. So by 1919, the League of Nations has set up uh, the International Drugs Regulatory System. The Home Office observes this by putting the Dangerous Drugs Act through Parliament, and it has to set up a monitoring agency, the Home Office Drugs Branch. And in monitoring um, crimes related to uh, drugs under the 1920 uh, Dangerous Drugs Act, the Home Office began to spot national trends in uh, which substances were being uh, used illegally, uh, where and why. Cannabis wasn't actually a controlled substance until 1928 in the UK, uh, when the UK um, uh, imposed the coca leaves and the Indian hemp uh, regulations underneath the Dangerous Drugs Act. Uh, and again, this did this mainly because of the 1925 Geneva Opium Convention, which is the first time that uh, cannabis uh, entered the International Drugs Regulatory um, Treaties. I tell you all of this partly because uh, you need to keep your eye on the story of the empire here. Because what we found is that Britain, by 1928, has got controls on cannabis in place, long before it has consumers. So there is no market in the UK for cannabis, and yet cannabis is a controlled substance in the UK by 1928. And the reason cannabis gets caught up in the opium conventions is because of imperial politics, which I don't really have time to touch on here. But Britain turned up in 1925 determined to impose one agenda uh, on uh, opium. The Americans turned up uh, with a number of allies determined to disrupt the British agenda. And introducing cannabis uh, into the agenda uh, on opium was one of the ploys used by the Americans and their Egyptian allies to try and frustrate British politics on opium. So cannabis gets tangled in the politics of imperialism back in the 1920s and ends up in law controlled in the UK, despite the fact that in 1925 the UK had opposed cannabis controls in the Opium Convention. Are you bored yet? No. Good. Because... The key to our News of the World um, story about um, dangerous foreigners and, um, and white girls and cannabis are these guys, as the Home Office concluded. The only consumers that we can find in the UK of cannabis in this period are these unlucky uh, merchant seamen. Now, because uh, the British uh, were quite happy to uh, tax cannabis consumption out in the empire, in West Africa and in, um, uh, in India. You found that when these guys became merchant seamen, when Indians and Africans joined the, the merchant shipping ways and ended up in the UK, often as not, they'd bring their favourite intoxicants and medicines with them. And rather than going drinking in the local pubs and drinking alcohol, uh, many of them would have brought cannabis with them, which was a perfectly acceptable source of um, medication and also recreational intoxication. And like all sailors do, I suppose, when they're um, uh, off ship and uh, on land, some of these guys got into trouble. They were fighting with locals, they were um, uh, getting caught up with prostitutes and so on. And when these guys were arrested for other um, uh, crimes, for fighting or public disorder, um, uh, association with prostitutes and so on, they turned their pockets out. And when they turned their pockets out, the police would find... Uh, often these, these um, exotic tobacco, it was often called by the police. But the police, because they were now being trained by the new Homes Office Drugs Branch, were alert to what these packages contained. So really all we find in the 1930s is the occasional prosecution 
of one of these Lascars or Oriental seamen, basically Asians and Africans working as maritime sailors. Uh, and they'd be found in the UK and, and sentenced or fined uh, to a small uh, period of uh, imprisonment. So these are the only guys who seem to be regularly using cannabis in the UK until the 1940s. By the late 1940s, of course, the Windrush generation begins to turn up. Um, this was uh, the, um, the empire's answer to a call for labour back in the UK. So Britain had been devastated by the Second World War. Uh, it needed to uh, rapidly rebuild its uh, infrastructure, uh, and it needed a labour force to do this. So the British government um, issued this invitation to the empire uh, uh, to come and work in the UK, uh, full citizenship, um, uh, as a member of the empire, you already had full British citizenship. So come make your fortune in the UK. And of course, um, many members of the uh, West Indian, Asian and African um, uh, uh, colonies responded to this call. The Windrush there famously arrived in 1948 at uh, Tilbury Docks. And by 1956, something like 40,000 uh, uh, people had arrived from the West Indies alone. Many other um, uh, South Asian uh, and African migrants were joining them. The Home Office began to get its knickers in a twist about this uh, as early as 1951. Uh, Thornton was then head of the drugs branch. Unless something can be done, he complained, by any of the authorities concerned to stem the invasion of unemployed coloured men, mostly British subjects from Africa and the British West Indies, we shall, in a very short space of time, be faced in this country with a serious hashish smoking problem. They are of little use in our labour market and ultimately drift to the West End of London, Tottenham Court Road area, where they associate with lower-class white girls, drink, peddle hashish cigarettes, and generally present a problem to the police. So here we've very much got a story that fits in with other crime drugs epidemics uh, that we're used to uh, um, from other periods and other places. This is all about um, dangerous immigrants. Uh, who are useless, uh, except, uh, and all they're achieving is bringing with them these dangerous substances and uh, corrupting local youth. In the same report, however, Thornton was forced to admit, or forced to uh, detail a case that he'd come across. Now, tell me who's corrupting who. Two young girls, a typist and a shop assistant, aged only 17, residing at Northampton, uh, who made one or two visits to London to visit modern music dance clubs. They evidently made friends at these venues as they exchanged letters with a man called Unwakanama, who they knew as Jimmy Demian. In one letter, the typist asked Unwakanama to send her some dope cigarettes, reefers, marijuana, or whatever you call the things, signing the letter in a false name and, of course, giving the other girl's address. What we've got here is that important moment of interaction where two cultures and two communities come to an interface and begin to swap uh, um, uh, tastes, habits, uh, um, uh, and essentially uh, exchange gifts. Much has been written about the arrival of the Windrush generation and other migrants during the 1940s and the 1950s, but I think it's important that sometimes drugs have been missed uh, I'd include Lord Kitchener's album cover there, just to give an idea of why uh, these migrants would have been so attractive. Uh, these were mainly young men coming in search of work. Uh, they looked good, their music was good, they were happy to spend uh, money on things that young men spend money on, sharp clothes, uh, nice records, uh, and so on, and drugs. 
So in the kind of drab austerity of the 1950s, uh, these guys and whatever they brought with them sounded attractive. So you can begin to see the moment when the two communities come together and young people begin to swap um, styles uh, and substances. Perhaps in the British imagination, or certainly in popular, uh, the popular imagination, it's the 1960s which are most associated with uh, cannabis and the establishment of a mass market. But I've argued in Cannabis Nation that this is something of a red herring. This is the moment when cannabis becomes politicised. But there's still no mass market in the UK uh, until the 1970s. We've seen those first moments of interaction where West Indian migrants are beginning to talk to local youth and to swap um, the things that they find cool and exciting. It's precisely because of this interaction that the 1960s counterculture adopts cannabis as one of its emblems. Because it's been argued that the... Um, the, uh, the counterculture rejected everything about the, its parents' generation, and this included its intoxicants. So alcohol was seen as something that was associated with uh, an older generation, uh, that was seen as dangerous, it made you aggressive and violent. Cannabis came with, it, uh, came with a whole range of associations with the colonised, uh, with migrants, uh, with those who were being bullied by the police and the authorities. Uh, to the counterculture, this looked like the, the, the drug uh, of the wretched of the earth. So for them, using cannabis associated uh, oneself with the wretched of the earth, with those trying to oppose everything that their parents stood for, um, empire uh, and nation. And for this reason, it was very much adopted as a, <clears throat> as a cipher for the counterculture and youth resistance. Uh, by the authorities, uh, there was a 1965 legislation rushed through by Henry Brooke, a uh, Home Office Minister, uh, to try to deal with this, which was an absolute disaster. It caused all sorts of um, problems. But of course, there were famous arrests. 1967, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were arrested for uh, drugs offences and, and the use of cannabis in particular. In 1967, there was the Hyde Park legalised cannabis demo uh, with the famous Times advertisement of that year paid for by the Beatles. And, the, uh, and by 1968, the establishment had to revise the hurried uh, legislation of 1965. It appointed an expert committee to look into cannabis consumption with the Wootton Committee, and the outcome was the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act. All important, but nobody was using cannabis. Happily, there's a 1968 file about that thick in the Home Office Drugs Branch archives, uh, and it surveyed chief police officers around the country. And outside of London, most chief police officers responded, much like their colleague in Wellington there. There is nothing to suggest that there has been any problem relating to the supply or use of drugs in Wellington to any degree. So, yes, cannabis now has this, um, this political edge, this political meaning in Britain. It's highly visible in the media and in government, but nobody's using the drug. Until the 1970s. Uh, and I argue again in Cannabis Nation that this is when the first generation uh, uh, of uh, cannabis consumers grows up together. This is a population um, based in the cities like London, Birmingham, Cardiff, Manchester, where there are large Asian and uh, North African and West Indian populations. And those people born in the 1960s and the 1970s now growing up in multicultural communities. There's lots of tension between older generations within these multicultural communities. Uh, but 
Uh, by the end of the 1970s, we see an increasingly common culture beginning to be identified by the youth uh, of the 1970s. And again, that's the reason I've got the, the beat and the specials up there for you. It just gives you a very visual representation of how uh, young people from uh, in, uh, large urban centres in the UK where there are mixed populations are, again, beginning to experiment with one another's music, one another's clothes, and one another's drugs. The story then really fast-forwards to the 1990s. Suddenly, there's new medical interest uh, in cannabis. Uh, and I argue that this is partly because of the heroin crisis of the 1980s when the authorities completely take their eye off cannabis after the controversies of the 60s and the 70s in response to uh, the sudden arrival of uh, significant amounts of heroin. But also, there's a growing distrust of the pharmaceutical industry, which has been growing um, slowly since the thalidomide crisis of the 1960s, and which continues well into the 1980s, not least of all because of the failure of pharmaceutical companies to deal with AIDS. This results in 1992 in the, uh, the uh, Alliance for the Cannabis Therapeutics in Britain, founded by Claire Hodges, uh, which by 1998 had the power to force, or certainly twist the arm, of the Home Office to license the UK's first trials of cannabis medicines for more than half a century, uh, when GW Pharmaceuticals was uh, set up uh, and Sativex was developed. My conclusions, I'm running dangerously close to time, so let's zero in on some quick conclusions. We asked a question right at the beginning, uh, where has this mass market for cannabis come from in the UK? I've argued that between the 20s and the 40s, really in the first half, of the 20th century. The real significant element of the consumption was that there wasn't any. That there was simply not a market for, uh, for cannabis uh, in this period, but there was control. And control came before cannabis, uh, con control came before consumption of cannabis because of the uh, tangled tentacles of empire. It's not until the 1950s that we see a permanent market for cannabis established uh, in the UK. And this is because migrants began to settle in the UK and bring their tastes for cannabis with them. In the 1960s, cannabis becomes politicised. It takes on new meanings uh, in British culture and in British politics and science. Uh, but again, nobody's consuming the substance until the 1970s when we see multicultural Britain starting to produce its own hybrid forms of culture, being consumed by um, people of various ethnic origins who are growing up together. And it's not until the 1990s that we see this new interest in cannabis as a medicine. My point, my point is this, that this mass market for cannabis has appeared in Britain because of British history. The forces that have shaped post-war Britain more widely, uh, imperialism, migration, multiculturalism, consumerism, it's these forces that have created the UK market for cannabis. Thank you. I'll just speak with mics. Thank you very much. That was fantastic. Um, I'm starting from a very different place. Um, my name is Arvind Viraya. I'm a consultant toxicologist at the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh here, and I work with the National Poisons Information Service. Uh, for those of you who have not heard of it, 
Um, we provide advice on managing poisoning across the UK. There are 14 consultants like myself, and we provide advice on a database called Talkspace, which everybody uses, and also people call up on a phone line anytime, 24-7, and we answer calls on severe cases of poisoning. So my talk here will be influenced by stuff that I see in a poisons ward here. So we have a dedicated ward where we admit patients who present with severe poisoning, my work with the National Poisons Information Service, my um, work with a multidisciplinary group in Edinburgh where we, um, we got together to manage the massive surge in use of a stimulant drug uh, called Burst at that time, ethylphenidate, which people were injecting into themselves that caused devastating um, effects. Um, and I'm a Scottish Quality and Safety Fellow, so some of what I'm talking about will be about how we improve services, how we make things different. But my talk is going to be very narrow compared to what you've heard so far. Jim spoke about a very large period of time, very complex history, but we're still making history. And I think what we are, what I'll be talking about will be related to what's happening now and perhaps the forces that determine what happens today. But I'm going to focus upon the management and care of people who have severe poisoning. And what I'm going to do is really talk about two cases. And what I want to do with the two cases is really give you a sense of what it feels like to be where I am, managing patients. Um, I mentioned many of the things that I have done, but I didn't mention that I have occasionally been an expert witness in severe events, uh, patients who've died, and this is one such case. And uh, um, I bring this up because it'll give you a sense of what it is that we face in the most severe cases. So here's a case, there was a big confused man who was found somewhere in England um, behaving very oddly, it stripped, him, stripped off all his clothes and he was sniffing the, dog, the air like a dog. He was found by the police and it took more than four policemen to subdue him. They tried to, um, they, they pointed a taser at him, he didn't even recognize it. Um, they had to, um, they, they had to tackle him, bring him down. Um, they had ankle restraints as well as handcuffs on him because he was big, strong, and he was really difficult to control. <clears throat> He had a history of methadrone use, and uh, um, one of the uh, police constables said that uh, there was heat coming off him, like a light bulb that had been switched on. And uh, the police at that time discussed what to do next with him and decided that he was too violent to be managed in the hospital. What they actually have written in their records is that the staff in hospital will refuse him. I put that there just as, a, uh, as something to bear in mind, that this man um, was so violent they felt that staff in hospital will not be able to manage him. They put him into the back of a van. They took out all his uh, restraints, the one in his ankles as well as his handcuffs, shut the door uh, closed and then locked it and then drove him for about 30 minutes. Um, one of the police constables describes the man rolling around, banging his head, in that police van on the way to the police cell. He was then put in a police cell where he was uh, placed um, with a policeman was placed outside and was meant to look every 10 or 15 minutes to make sure the patient is the person, the detained person was safe. 
and he was flailing around, banging himself. So they took him out of that and put him into another cell. I looked at the CCTV um, pictures of what happened of that whole time, and they were horrific. There's no other way to describe it. But he was put again in another cell where there wasn't a toilet or a sink for him to bang his head against, and he was left out there. I'm going to ask a question here, just in case anybody here knows the answer to this. Uh, it's always helpful to know the audience. Does anybody know why this man was transferred without restraint? Why he was put in the cell again without restraint? Um, it's a good answer, but not the right one in this case. But it, it, it is a question that perhaps I'll, I'll come to the answer. I was just interested in knowing what um, you have there. So I'll come back to that. Thank you. And that is a valid point as well. But in this case, just continuing on with the story for now, and I will come to why he wasn't restrained. He then, in the police cell, vomited, and now they were really worried. There were times when he seemed to be not responding, and other times he was flailing on the um, floor. They called a forensic medical examiner. He did a very cursory examination. He walked in, you can see in the CCTV, he walked in, walked out, and said, send him to hospital urgently. And uh, they called an ambulance. Ambulance came. They transferred him onto the ambulance, and because he was a big man, and I think because he was, they were afraid of him, they put him prone on the ambulance trolley and cuffed him, and then he had a cardiac arrest. Um, Interestingly, they then, instead of trying to resuscitate him on the trolley, for those of you who do resuscitation, you'll realize that we try and do things straight away. But instead, they trans transferred him onto his back, ran with him to the ambulance van, and then out there they resuscitated him. And he came back. He was uh, fine. He, he, he regained spontaneous circulation. For those of you who are not familiar with that abbreviation, return of spontaneous circulation, he was then taken to hospital. He had a broad complex ECG, ventricular tachycardia, uh, at other times, but in this case, he had an output, but he had a very wide complex, uh, QRS complex, and uh, uh, he had severe acidosis, raised potassium, temperature was quite high at that time. And he was given various treatments, so um, I've put that there for those of you who want to look at it, but I've, I've added the next point, that if they had called us, or indeed if they'd looked up Toxbase, the advice would have been to give other things and more of the sodium bicarbonate. So diazepam or other benzodiazepines we'd have very strongly recommended, and he'd have had more sodium bicarbonate. I raised these things for a particular reason, just bear with me. But I'm going to ask this question. So I've put this up as the myths. And there is one false belief that I was asking about earlier in relation to the restraint, but there are other false beliefs that led to this. The myths in the population perception of people with drugs of abuse. One of them is a concept, a construct called excited delirium. There are people who have written many papers about it, and excited delirium is thought to be a condition that predominantly occurs from drug use, and not very long ago I heard a talk given at a, 
Society of Acute Medicine Conference, so we had a lot of acute medics where they were talking about this. Um, and they talk about, and that term superhuman, um, not human, very violent, but superhuman strength. Um, they talk about uh, the, fa the, the belief that these people like looking at their reflections, but react to it. So keep glasses, mirrors, and uh, water away from these people. A very strange thing to describe in a scientific uh, um, community. And they talk about the worry that these people, when they are restrained, can die. And in fact, this belief was so pervasive, that particular police force, and the, not just the police force, but even the doctors in the hospital had all heard about excited delirium. They'd had educational sessions about excited delirium. And the police constables in the field, one of them had raised this worry that the next stage will be what he called heart failure and death. He tried to get the patient to hospital, but that didn't happen. But they were worried about the superhuman strength of this man and the risk to himself and to other people. Okay. There, there are other myths. We have many other myths in medicine. Um, our policemen are not the only people who have false beliefs. And in fact, you can understand their lack of knowledge about it. This is not their area of work. But many of us have our own false beliefs. Bicarbonate is bad is a thing that seems to be uh, more commonly believed in um, the management of acutely ill people, the British cardiac, no, sorry, the resuscitation council's guidance on managing cardiac arrest has reduced the number of references to bicarbonate to the detriment of poison patients. Just so I give you a sense of what that means, I had about a year ago a call about an 11-month-old child with cocaine poisoning with cardiac arrest. Um, the very clever parents had uh, decided to hide a bag of cocaine under the child's pillow, and the child had got hold of it. And by the time the ambulance reached them, it reached the child, he was in cardiac arrest. Um, for an hour, I was at one end of a phone advising somebody in England about running a cardiac arrest, the most stressful thing I've ever done. But in that case, the amount of sodium bicarbonate we gave, uh, 8 millimoles per kilogram, would work out for me to be about 13 vials of the high concentration, not the two vials they gave this man. And that child completely recovered with no sequelae. So treatments are effective, but people did not know about it because they thought they knew what the treatment was and they didn't follow things that were available easily. Um, you've already seen something very similar. Um, Jim had something from a long time ago as you can see, history just repeats itself. We have these, uh, um, we have these myths and these uh, uh, panic-inducing um, news items that still appear. The zombie plague that uh, uh, suddenly was a talk of town for some time in my line of work. Um, so people talk about these things as if um, if they can take one photograph of one man lying on the ground and they can then link it to a particular drug, it becomes some terrible menace that's been spreading everywhere. And yet, drug use and drug-related harm has been occurring for a long time. So there are other myths. 
there are myths that we were experiencing, we were seeing at the time that uh, I spoke about the ethyl phenidate and IV use. Um, when I worked with this multidisciplinary team, um, I actually stepped out after a little while because um, there were two major problems I had with that piece of work. One was that there was a perception that this drug was highly addicting. And the way it was presented was that people have to take it every, some people take it every 40 minutes to an hour. So it's very addicting. In hospital, you have to give something to replace it or give them lots of drugs to control it. And the meaning of addiction itself there was really not clear to me. This is a group of people who, in my view, were aiming for a state, for a way uh, to feel that isn't the same as a physical withdrawal from alcohol. This is a different thing. And the, I felt that it was a habit that was addicting, the, the state that they wanted to be in. And in fact, when the drug was banned, many of them just went to taking IV heroin. That cannot be because of the physiological effects. Ethylphenidate was a stimulant. Heroin is a depressant. It cannot be that these people got the same effect, but they went to heroin in exactly the same way. So it's a strange thing. There was also the myth that being non-judgmental while working with people who use drugs meant that you cannot say that they are wrong. I sat in meetings where I really wanted to share the information we had on the horrors of ethylphenidate as it was being injected. People were losing their limbs. There were hindquarter amputations done in the Royal Infirmary because those things were so horribly caustic to the veins that they had destroyed veins and arteries. I had a lot of patients who came in with horrific injuries all over their bodies. Um, there was a particular type of endocarditis that was occurring only in this group of patients. But I couldn't persuade colleagues working with drugs and drug treatment centers to actually share that information because they said, that's not what you should be doing. You should just give them information about risks and benefits without making it um, too uh, dramatic. Well, the reality was dramatic, but I couldn't share there were many other prejudice views. Now, I'm not speaking about other things where there are prejudice views about drug users. There are people who feel when a person is addicted that it's just something they have control over and they just need to pull themselves together. This is not for treatment. That's not something I subscribe to. There are many other negative perceptions of drug users. But that is something that people have greater expertise in than I do. I'm not going to speak about it. That doesn't mean that all the myths are, um, uh, that I've explored all the myths in this area. I'm going to speak very briefly about managing the myths here. And I, I say this because we talk about history. We talk about how these things impact our populations, impact on the work that we do. Some of it has to be about what we can do to perhaps change it. What are the forces that we shape? How can we influence what happens? We can educate people. Education is always a great tool. And in this institution, of course, we, uh, we really do contribute to a great education. But it is a difficult thing because in the heat of the moment, in, when faced with a big 
agitated, frightening man, a lot of people forget everything they've learned. And uh, um, I've seen that happen, actually, happen to me. Um, advice available on Talkspace or on the phone, I think it does a great service. I know it does, uh, it's a great service because people who um, report back to us, we have 97, 95% satisfaction routinely for the service that we provide. But it doesn't reach everybody. Nobody called us about the man here. There are other tools, and I'm going to just briefly touch on them, the things that we can do that make it easier to do the right thing at the time that we see a patient. And perhaps it's not just about patients. It's about um, in other places as well. So here's one. Um, before we go there, Talkspace, just to make it clear, excited delirium is the wrong thing. We'd call it serotonin syndrome. We have advice on it. Don't worry about the fine print here. It's just to give you an idea of how we provide our advice. People can just go to it on an app or a computer and find out what they can do to manage it. Where the ECG has a prolonged QRS, then they treat them with sodium bicarbonate, and there's advice on how to do that. That may or may not work. So in the Royal Infirmary, over a period of time, um, my team and I, many people working with me, um, developed a tool for uh, use at the time of admitting patients with poisoning where it makes it easier. At the time a doctor sees a patient or a nurse sees a patient for that matter, if they see QRS prolongation on the ECG underlined out there, then there are things they can do. So that makes it easier. They don't have to go look for guidance. It's there, available. And the next step, this was tested using foundation doctors, so relatively junior doctors, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it. Um, which, anyway, so, um, and in fact, for a tool, for a new document, this is the one and only time that I've ever had everybody say that it actually increases their efficiency and it increases their confidence. Most times people say, it is better, but we never have the time. It just makes it all harder to do. That wasn't the case with this. So we can do things and make it easier. And the extension of that, perhaps, now with an electronic patient record, we can't uh, use the previous document. We're thinking of finding a way in which when a person's really ill, they perhaps just pull a sheet of paper and work through it. Um, I don't think these are the... So there are many things that can be done and many ways in which we can address it and quality improvement approaches, which is what the Quality and Safety Fellowship has uh, left me with, mean that I'll constantly be improving it. We, so far, I've just spoken about myths, which we do see a lot of, but I'm going to talk about a completely different case. And in this case, it was, um, this was a man who presented with having taken a stimulant. Now, the name escapes me now. It's been some time since this case happened a year ago, and there are so many names that they all gel into one for me. Anyway, so here I was doing a ward round, and uh, I spoke to my trainees and said, this is a man who's come with a stimulant toxidrome. I don't know whether many of you have come across patients who know a lot about their illness and uh, um, want to tell you that you're wrong. Well, this was my uh, most uh, um, challenging case in that uh, particular setting. So he told me that what he had taken wasn't a stimulant. I had a long lecture, and I actually listened patiently and quietly. 
he told me about its chemical structure, that uh, this was different from the stimulant that I was thinking about. It had a methyl radical in a different place, and it worked on some other receptor, and it did this, and so many percent of pe people who took it report this, etc., etc. And I'm going to ask you a question now. For those of you who um, know a lot of statistics and information about things unrelated to work, can you think of what you would know so much information about? Can somebody put up your hands if you know a lot of such information, statistics and data? What? Does anybody know a lot of stats on something else other than work-related stuff? So at one time I did. Now I think it's all gone, but cricket, statistics, who scored what, when they scored it, all kinds of details I would know, and uh, that was my club. And this is what it reminded me of. This, I thought, was a person who was a fan. He knew a lot. He knew a lot of useless information, but he knew it, and it was his identity. And. The next question that came to me was, like with a fan, and think of your football fan, think of your, um, I don't know what fan uh, you may be, whether you like running and you like knowing your exact num number of minutes, hours that you took to do your running. Does that information make you indulge in the activity more? Does it make you love that activity even more? And that's the question and I asked myself at that time while he was talking, I wasn't really listening to him, sorry about that. Sometimes it's just too much. It didn't make any difference to me. So I've, uh, this is a relatively new term to me. My daughter taught me this, fandom, but I've, I've looked it up from Wikipedia. So it is, let's say, being in a fan club. But it's a subculture where you have an empathy and camaraderie for others who are similar to you. And um, in our wards, we do hear people at the time that legal highs were still being used a lot who'd say, well, I never take that heroin stuff. I'm not one of those losers. And then you'd see the people who take heroin who say, I don't do any of that legal high. That's horrible stuff. I only take heroin. You could be talking about football clubs there, really. They did have a lot of uh, fellow human feeling with what they did. They're interested in even the minor details. And here's a man who gave me a lot of detail. But there were many others who would tell me a lot of details about exactly when they took what and who gave them. A lot more detail than they really needed to give me or talk amongst themselves. They spent a significant proportion of time and energy on it. And that's true not just about this man who was clearly a um, more eloquent or more verbose than others. But a lot of them did spend a lot of time finding out. And uh, for those of you who've never seen Arrowhead or any of those websites where uh, people write about user experiences with drugs, well done. It was a horrible thing for me to look at it. But I have looked at it. And a lot of people write lots and lots. And they share experiences where they get the good drugs, what things work for them, and ask questions. And people spend a lot of time on that. And that forms their social network. Their social network is also the head shops. Their social network is also the third sector places where they stand in a queue to go in to find information. In actual fact, 
that third sector organization whose intent is to help people give them the information from which they can make the right choices sometimes is there is the equivalent of the magazine store they can go and find more information and it's not just information it's information presented beautifully so here's what's called a drugs wheel um lovely i think that's an advertisement i think that's not just informing people that's presented in such color and in in such a way that this is like your the wine that you drink that reminds you of your time in naples warm sun drenched whatever you know you put in the right words and the thing sounds wonderful people want to buy it that's what this does and there's the empathogen that that patient spoke about if they were really an empathogen that's what we should be giving all our doctors and nurses we probably be better at practicing it i just don't believe it exists but there it's there a myth and it isn't restricted to people in the third sector fandoms are all of us sometimes in the same way as government interventions maybe a government constantly talking about needing to control cannabis feeding into people thinking that must be a good thing because the government wants to control it and i want it our language influences what happens here is a british medical journal article talking about this is a review on psychoactive substances and the bit that i've uh, that i've chosen to depict doesn't say that these agents typically do not produce and then it doesn't say people report what it says is it is associated with quasi mystical um experiences really quasi mystical is this um really scientific language it sells something there if we say it if we say quasi mystical then people will think oh yes i can smoke it and i will then suddenly reach nirvana or whatever it is the language matters and this may be what came out in a journal but i can tell you that i've been in international toxicology meetings where there are very excited professors talking about the next chemical thing you know what they've added this and it does this and you know this shulgin and shulgin book was fantastic it talked about all the development of all the drugs of abuse we contribute as well fandom is not just the users fandom is the producers it's also the people who become the experts and that includes us so there are risks to this and the risks of this culture this um, time that we are in is that the amount of information can actually overwhelm staff we were routinely being told by staff we can't manage these patients we don't know what drug they are taking and they feel really out of control by the when they are with the patient who gives them so much information and i also think that the information right or wrong information may itself be the be the addictive principle not the physiological effect of the drug but actually just enough information about it keeps them addicted what we do and um how we manage it is um we try to anyway in the national poisons information service move it away from the magic of the individual drug with a chemical radical here the, the methyl radical here and whatever else change it to something that even if you don't know you just go to a drugs of abuse page and then it classifies based on the seven groups it then you pick your group and then it will tell you what to do 
and the clinical features are there. You can work based upon clinical features alone. What do you do next? So you don't need to worry that you don't know that particular drug. In this case, it could be a stimulant or a serotonin agonist for this drug. But there is one thing about helping people with advice on managing it based on the clinical features. I think there is also a need for all of us to manage this link between knowledge or information and harm to these people. Harm because they are drawn in to believe that they are doing something that is like a fandom and they are drawn into it more and more. And also harm because we feel afraid of managing them sometimes. I'm not going to ask you this question. I would have loved to think time's short and uh, it might be difficult to get, but I'd love to know what you think. I'll tell you what I did. What I did was, after listening to it patiently with a lot of difficulty, I just said to him, I appreciate what you say. I, I admire the time that you've spent in learning all this, but all of it is irrelevant. I said it's irrelevant because it's unlikely that you actually know what you take. We've got data, we've actually analyzed the substances in the packets and in urine, and quite often it's a mixture of substances, and in one third of cases it has nothing of the thing that they thought they were taking. Okay. So what they take is different from what they thought they took anyway. And I think it's also important because we treat based on the clinical features. It doesn't matter what they took, really, in what they call it. The effects vary from person to person, and they, they vary from time to time. So you can't really work from that. I also said, and might be a bit of a petty thing to do to him, but I said to him, just, I just want to make it very clear, you're not a scientist. You're not advancing science. You are a drug user. You just have to stop making this about something more than that. Stop rationalizing it. You need to work on reducing the drug use. And I said, even if you are well informed, I might know about medicines. I get admitted to hospital. I follow what the professionals tell me. That's what my professional body says. That's best practice. I can't be subjective. I can't be objective about it. And I advise the same thing to you. Forget all this thing that you think you know. Listen to what we say. That is the opposite of person-centered care. I don't normally do this. Not with a diabetic patient who actually knows more than I do quite often. Not with others. But in this case, I believe that there is a real risk. So I'm going to summarize here and stop. There are many elements of this culture of drug use that affect how these patients are cared for when they are severely poisoned. There are myths, there are beliefs and fantastical effects, um, the superhuman strength, uh, the zombie plague. There are many that come out there. There is a belief that the care of these people, and in fact the ex effect they experience, is precisely connected to the alleged substance they took. That, I think, is a myth. That is not the truth. And I believe that the knowledge or information that the user sometimes has, and there's sometimes, some of them have less, but a lot of them with the legal highs had this, itself contributes to poorer care and itself contributes to their persisting addiction. And 
what we do in terms of management. And I think something that all of us can do is make sure that the language is temperate. Even if the person has taken a drug, even if it is a drug-related effect, it really is helpful to make sure that we talk about things in temperate language. Not superhuman strength, violence, abuse, yes, but nobody is superhuman. They are human, whatever happens to them. Make it simple. Talk about toxidromes or whatever you want to call them, but simplify it. We don't have to follow every single chemical structure and every single effect of those changes. And concentrate on the relevant information. I'd also add that last bit. I know that this is uh, not what I do in the rest of uh, my practice, but I think in this particular area there is a need to challenge the user experience and the user expertise. Thank you. Thank you very much to both our speakers. We'll have a, a mini break if you want to escape. Um, I think I, I'm going to have to keep on putting um, on um, meetings about this subject. It, it's intrinsically very interesting. But for some reason, people who are involved are always great speakers. I thought those were two terrific presentations that raised lots of um, very interesting ideas and looked at things in ways that I hadn't thought of. Um, fascinating. Um, thank you very much. Could I ask our two speakers to go over to the table there? Um, we have got a roving mic. Um, either, if you can shout loudly, please do. But um, um, uh, we have got a roving mic um, which we can capture your questions. Um, uh, while, uh, while we're waiting, um, I, I was fascinated uh, that Jim mentioned the uh, 1967 Times editorial. Um, well, you mentioned the Times advert, but there was also a Times editorial uh, which um, was trying to get Keith Richards and Mick Jagger out of jail. And ironically, and it's again one of the, the many ironies that you come up in this subject, uh, it was written by William Rees-Mogg, and it was a very liberal editorial. And of course, William Rees-Mogg is the father of Jacob Rees-Mogg. So um, irony on ironies, I think. Um, uh, is there anyone who would like to uh, start the questions going? Yes. Do you want Sorry, to just please. shout while we, we get the microphone organized? Uh, yeah, microphone. Cheers. Hello. Hi. Well, I wanted to thank both of you um, for your presentations. They were very, very interesting. Um, my uh, questions are for Dr. Veriaya. Is that close enough? Okay, perfect. Um, so I, uh, I used to work at a methadone clinic in the United States. And I wanted to point out, that, you know, one of my clients who um, was a, a heroin addict was once the head of surgery at the local hospital. You know, she was a woman who worked in STEM worked her way up in a man's world and then because she had access to the drugs became a victim unfortunately and now is a bag lady who lives on the streets. And so I, I think 
with my point is I wanted to dispel the myth between a us versus them mentality because I think we all have the capacity to become uh, victims of drug addiction. Um, and my, my second question um, is, have you personally tried any of the drugs that we spoke about tonight? No, I haven't. Huh. And uh, why did you ask that question? Uh, just out of curiosity. No, I've never tried any of the drugs. Um, I have tried al well, alcohol is the only drug that I've really used. I think when I was in medical school, there was a, uh, in India, in the, for the festival of Holi, you can get cannabis in bang to drink. Mine must have been just milk because I didn't have any effect, didn't feel anything. My, co my friends, some of them had effects on it, uh, with it, but uh, no, never tried, never was uh, interested in it. Thank you. I might just add, just to follow up on that first point you made about um, doctors and, and heroin. I mean, really up until the 1960s, um, the only regular users, well, recreational users of, of heroin and morphine were doctors. And we see, because the Home Office Drugs Branch began keeping these records in the 1920s, the only regular, um, uh, the only regular if you like, abusers, or certainly those who were using heroin and morphine for non-medical purposes, from the 20s right through to the 60s were, on the whole, former medical professionals who for one reason or another had come to use these substances because they could access them uh, relatively easily. Or middle class users who'd, who'd come to heroin and morphine through medical prescription uh, and continued to uh, access these substances. There's a very famous case in Glasgow uh, quite early in the 1920s uh, of uh, a doctor and his wife uh, who fell foul of the Dangerous Drugs Act because he was regularly prescribing to her. Uh, and she was having to wander around Glasgow, or transport herself around Glasgow, and use a whole range of different chemists in the hope that her um, regular heroin use uh, wouldn't be noticed. So it's, uh, it's, it's, a, story, you know, it's a story that I'm, I'm sure you've taken from recent times, uh, an entirely familiar one for much of the 20th century. Um, I wondered if, is there, um, at, the, at the present moment, particular drug hotspots in, in the UK where um, do patterns of usage um, change depending on where you are, or is it constant? The intensity of usage definitely changes. I mean, London has a much higher usage of many drugs than other places. There is a variation to some extent, I mean, the injected legal high usage in Edinburgh wasn't really something that was seen anywhere else at that time. So there are temporal trends, but they are short term. The biggest difference is that some places there is more drug use, but then London is a massive place, so, and, and there are lots of uh, visitors there, so it, it's a very difficult thing to unpick. Mm. whether it's a resident population, whether it's some, something else. But there are differences in intensity mm -hmm. rather than, I think, the specific type, generally speaking. Right. And just to add to that, Ian, I think it's, uh, it's, it's worth pointing out that the, um, the consumption of, of, uh, of these substances can sometimes be related to their control. And what we know is across the UK, um, the, the various parts of the legislation, the Misuse of the Drugs Act, 
uh, and the psychos back to what was the what was the 2016 app called again? Substances. Which one? The psycho app. Yes, yeah, that's a, a bill. Uh, the, the police very differently around the country. So, uh, as, a, as a, a man who spent three years in, in, in Northampton uh, back in the 1990s, it always amuses me that uh, Northampton's police force, uh, you're four, four times more likely to get arrested for the possession of cannabis uh, in Northampton than you are an hour away in London because different police forces have very different attitudes to how to uh, enforce these laws. And I think this can sometimes be related to um, um, the problems of trying to identify regional patterns in consumption. Uh, because um, different police forces enforce in very different ways and therefore generate very different statistics uh, about what local problems may or may not be. Mm. Any uh, other questions from the audience? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much. Um, I I very much enjoyed the, um, the, the two talks there. The one thing that seemed to link them to me was something probably arising from the law of unintended consequences. I think um, with Dr. Mills, that, that was quite apparent due to the controls that were put in place before you know, mass usage. Um, but also, going to, to Dr. Varaya, sorry, that's how you pronounce your name, um, I wonder if you could suggest something as well. There's, there's been, there was certainly one of the unintended consequences of the use of, say, ecstasy and pathogens and lots of other drugs um, was perhaps that people had to go and find their own information because a lot of research, all research I think had been banned for a long time and in fact it's only just beginning again in certain types of substance. So I think that probably drove people to trying to find out what they had to be aware of if they were deciding to use that drug and I do wonder if the, the last question asker was maybe alluding to the fact that it's much more of a multi-dimensional experience taking drugs and it has been for the purposes of this talk, obviously, you know, pathologized in a sense. And that it is deeper, so the person who perhaps wants to learn about statistics, etc., etc., is actually trying to find out how to actually manage their own desire to have an experience that a lot of people don't actually know about. And it's only when you actually do um, either experiment or decide to choose on a substance that you learn that there's lots of other dimensions to it. I admire the work you do because if I ever had a crisis, I would hope that I, you know, I could be saved. I would hope I wouldn't have a crisis. But I would also like to think that the, the people who are dealing with the medical side could maybe look beyond it. I studied health promotion, so again, I would probably challenge the idea that saying to someone taking drugs is wrong, I would say that using language that doesn't imply blame, but probably still you know, has a responsible approach to maybe the, the dangers could, you know, could, could well be you know, taken on board. Um, but as I say, I, I'm, I'm glad people like yourself are there. Um, but I, I would uh, look, or I would, I would hope that there'd be a, a greater depth of knowledge look because a lot of these substances do have effects that people actually do enjoy. And I think the, the mass use has probably grown out of a subtle, um, I, I think, um, I, what was the word, realization that these can be nice experiences and we have to accept that. And there's a lot of, uh, I think, you know, disapproval um, that can come through quite easily unless we look at the wider side of it. Thank you. Um, I recognize that. Um, <laughs> um, but I, and, and in a way, when I put this up, I thought I would 
challenge that particular approach for the reason that, yes, people get joy from it, that's why they take it, there's no doubt about it. Um, my view is that um, cigarette smoking, for example, people do it because they get joy from it. As a doctor, that doesn't mean that I, can, I don't tell them that that cigarette smoking is bad for them. There is a difference between accepting that the person has a right to make that choice and, that they, uh, and, and accepting that they are deriving pleasure from it from saying that that thing is still causing them harm. It is an informed choice, yes, and an informed choice that includes information about the harms from it. And as a doctor, I feel my first duty is to inform them about a healthy way of life. It doesn't mean that I won't, um, I, that I won't work with that person like with any other person with an illness or even without an illness. It, isn't, it doesn't diminish that person in my eyes. But I still think it's a responsibility to tell them that it is an unhealthy thing. So to, to take that point, yes, it is multidimensional. There are many other elements to using drugs and to other risks that people take in their lives, whether it's with um, sports and injuries or whether it's sex or anything else. People do have a right to take those risks. They have a right to do things. But um, where those risks are evident and they are, they are very uh, much more the place where I'm in, they are massive risks, then I think there is a responsibility on my part and on the part of people like me to ensure that people have that information. That's about alcohol, that's about cigarette smoking, and that could be about dangerous sports practices. It's not a judgment that this is some terrible thing. This is not that people like me or others can't do it. It isn't about diminishing the person. It's about dealing with the harms of that particular practice. Just to add to that, I think what I, what I took from Arvind's paper was that the, there's, there's lots of bad information out there for everybody. So uh, whilst you know, consumers are out there trying to find information that they think is going to be useful or relevant, so are many medical practitioners, so are many medical scientists. And then you get to policymakers. And policymakers have been making decisions based on a whole range of evidence now for, for decades, if not centuries, most of which, when you actually start to, to scratch away at the surface, uh, is, is highly questionable. The cannabis, cannabis first entered the international drugs regulatory system, as I mentioned, in 1925. Um, on the initiative of the Egyptian government. Now, the Egyptian government, if you read through the minutes of the meetings, the only piece of scientific evidence which is produced uh, is the claim that um, cannabis is produced, um, uh, cannabis is responsible for most of the cases uh, currently at the Cairo Mental Hospital. Now, the Cairo Mental Hospital in 1925 was a colonial institution that had been running for about 25 years under the superintendency of a chap called John Warnock. Now, Warnock had just retired, um, I think in 1922, and written this, this nice kind of biographical note in which he admitted that he never learned Arabic uh, and never really left the hospital and had 
he publishes his first article on cannabis use in Egypt in 1903, I think. Uh, and he, he willingly admits in his biography that up until then he relied on one of his patients to do the translations. Uh, a patient who then claimed, you know, turned out to be highly delusional. So this is the only piece of scientific evidence that, that, um, uh, that heralds the entry of cannabis into the international drugs regulatory system, you know, the, the control system which really stops international flows in cannabis now or, or renders them illegal. So I think we need to remember that it's not just um, consumers who are thrashing around looking for information that's reliable here. This is also the case with medical scientists, um, law enforcers and policy makers. Your second point there about, well, you know, people are taking drugs because they're nice. I don't think that explains the UK market for cannabis. You know, why is it only, you know, there's a much higher percentage of 16 to 24 year olds consuming cannabis than there are over the age of 24. There's a range of studies over the last 20 years uh, which demonstrate that once you get to the age of about 23, 80% of cannabis users up to that point will begin to drift away from using it. So why, why that age group? Because it remains as nice, I imagine, if you're you know, uh, when you're 30 or 40 or 50 years old, as it does when you're 16 or 17. And the answer, of course, because it's cool. And why is it cool? Because it's got this whole range of historical associations with being alternative and hip, but not really dangerous. So there's this idea that it's kind of got these cool associations, but it's not heroin, uh, and it's not these other substances. So I think, again, you know, it's, it, yeah, people use these substances because they're nice. But exactly which people use them because they're nice or they're perceived to be nice comes down to marketing, advertising, and again, the flow of ideas and information. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk slash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.